Hello, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical education, the ancient world, and stuff. My name is Thomas Magby. Isn't that good? Catch all. Stuff. Catch stuff. All. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My name is Thomas Magby. I'm joined, as always, by Mr. A.J. Hannenberg. That is me. And Mr. Graham Donaldson. Hi. Now, gentlemen, um, th- uh, first I want to say thank you to A.J. for posting last week's episode uh, and for correctly... Um, that is 100% definitely the name of my child. So thank you for sharing that with the entire world. I so if you, you want to knit like a little booties yeah, or a yeah, shirt yeah. and put the name in yeah, well, well, I can imagine yeah. the, the, uh, it would take so much to knit that. I can't imagine being able to fit that. It's a very long name. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, Did you enjoy your, your uh, paternity one, leave? One week paternity well, leave that's from what the podcast. It is in, that's yeah. what it is in the States, right? So we, <laughs> yeah, one week. Yeah, that's exactly week. right. So. Um, so, I mean, you don't have to thank us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do want you to feel like you kind of need to make it up. In some little extra hours here. And oh, there, so I got to do a couple extra episodes um, to make up for it. Pile. But it's, it's like just. This. Yeah, I think the only thing that the <laughs> that's protected by law is the position itself. So uh, thank you for an unpaid week off from oh, the podcast. Much appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh no, you're paid. You're getting just as much pay. Just, yeah, yeah, you're actually, getting, actually as you usually get anything. So <laughs> you'll be receiving your usual paycheck. <laughs> that is 100 percent true. Um, so today we are going to be talking about um, Brave New World again. And, you know, I just, uh, just, isn't it wonderful that this podcast has such people in it? Let's start. Yeah. Let's <laughs> yeah, so yeah. just say, isn't it a, sort of a brave new world for you, yeah, Thomas? Just, being yeah. A father, oh, wow. Father, yeah. Yes. But not hopefully, not, hopefully not the same kind of brave new world. That would go poorly. The one of inescapable social destiny? Uh, yes, I guess. <laughs> though we've already planned out our child's future life oh, to the perfect. T, of Can course. Be a yeah. Doctor? Uh, doctor slash lawyer slash teacher and will obviously be classical classically educated so has to get a phd in uh, classics too i don't yep. know and a doctor lawyer too. agog i don't know fluent in latin as well so i don't know here yep. we go um yeah so we are so on our first when we talked about brave new world before we i meant more made painted the picture of the world that huxley had created um a little bit of background on huxley some of which listeners pointed out was incorrect which is always great uh, I don't mean that sarcastically low sounded sarcastically. I love getting those emails. Uh, but like, yeah, it's really so helpful for things us. like Huxley's grandfather wasn't actually on the ship with Darwin, but was a huge Darwin champion. So that, I mean, I had just, I had made that mistake my whole life. So that's, that's good. Well, he may have been a stowaway. Yeah. Pro- prove me yeah, wrong. Prove, yeah, seriously. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> Come at me. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Can't prove a negative, boys. Yeah. <laughs> Aldous Huxley's <laughs> grandfather was on, what was the name of the boat? Uh, obviously it's the, was on the Darwin's walking, it's like the, beagle. the walking fish the beagle was on the beagle yeah. convince me otherwise <laughs> sit in the middle of campus it's like all those um. videos that are telling you that Australia doesn't exist <laughs> yeah. yeah anyway that's a that's an internet thing that's a thing that yeah. Australia doesn't exist yeah Australia's not where real. did I go I've never seen it oh. this it was a a lot of the students like to make fun of them anyway it's a whole line of videos I don't recommend any of them please pretend I'd never well it's like have you ever seen a baby seagull or a baby pigeon anyway whatever what Um, (laughs) you're right oh my god (laughs) so um, we just did a little bit of world building and I in the podcast I said we're not really going to get to the story we're not really going to get to the story but for this one we are going to talk a little bit about the story um, and these characters that are in the world and um, and then uh, sort of uh, draw out what I think are some of the big and interesting themes or, the, or some of the ways that I, uh, I go about teaching this book. So um, if you if you are if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I would suggest stopping this right now and go. And if you 
want to listen about Brave New World, go and listen to the first podcast on the Brave New World and then come back and do this one because I'm going to assume that the listeners have a working knowledge of, of the world that we talked about. And isn't there another podcast that did an episode? We were, we were notified about another rival podcast. Yes. Just to be clear, are they a, they're a rival only because they are also a podcast? Oh, Definitely. Yes. Like, so it's just, so all zero podcasts sum game, winner take all. Okay, I've started. Podcast world. I don't think that's how that works. I've started carrying weapons. <laughs> okay, just, just in, in case, case I meet control. him in the fields and I can start snapping. Yeah. Yes. And so there uh, apparently in the literature, literary podcast landscape, Brave Huxley is having a renaissance, and we are inadvertently a part of but it. But have any of us listened to this I haven't. I, I, we, uh, we were notified of, and then Hannenberg and I were at the SC Society of Classical Learning Conference this week, and you were uh, in uh, I was Domestic for, Bliss. Yeah, so. yes, I was. I was caring for a child. Um, Shout out to SCL. Please accept our application. <laughs> <laughs> this is the second years. year yeah, that second we year. have been rejected yeah, for SCL. Let's, yeah. or, you know us. what? Let's let's keep it going. Keep on rejecting keep, us. Keep okay. rejecting we'll us, keep please. trying. It'll be tradition. Yeah. Every year we'll apply, and you'll reject. It'll be great. Fun. Okay. Um, uh, I, I don't. I assume we want to name. So, if anyone wants to listen mm. to that episode, that's History in Reverse is mm-hmm. the name of the podcast. So. And sorry, we have nothing to say about it because we, we will to, listen sorry. to it, but we haven't. Anyway, if you are History in Reverse listening, keep on working backwards. I don't know. I don't know. Or you watch your back. Yeah. <laughs> Just from Hannenberg. Just to be clear, uh, I'm, a, I'm a pacifist, peace loving Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, unless we're on the ice. Um, so. <laughs> Aren't you always on the okay, ice in Canada? Good. Okay, are. sorry. Um, so the story starts with uh, painting the picture of this world. There is this uh, a gentleman, and he is taking a school group of alphas, little ba- little alpha kids, uh, or alpha younglings, um, off to the Department of Hatcheries, and he's showing them how all these various uh, children are bottled and born. And they're having to write down notes because they're going to have tests when they get home. And this serves sort of good as good world-building and expo- uh, exposition. Exposition? Exposition. Exposition for the, for the reader to know sort of what's going on. But then when the story gets into swing, we're sort of introduced to three characters— and these three characters all kind of have a weird sort of feeling that the things just aren't really perfect. Um, so let's start with the character of Bernard. So, and these are all, uh, Bernard Marx is um, uh, an alpha. And he has some sort of pencil-pushing white-collar job as an alpha. I can't remember quite what it is. It's not... I don't is it the advertising guy? Or that's no, that's, oh. that's Hemholtz. He has some sort of uh, administrative job. Bernard's an alpha? Wasn't he like an alpha minus? Or? No, he's an alpha, and he should be like a pure alpha, not an alpha plus. But there's something about him that either during his his you know time in the, in the hatchery or whatnot... There was something, he, he is a couple of inches, I think he's like an inch or two shorter than everybody else. Now, all of the alphas are bred to be the same height. Betas are a little bit shorter. Gammas, deltas, epsilons are shorter and going down. So you have this visual hierarchy into the system. Whatever happened to Bernard, people whisper and say, oh, I think a little bit of alcohol spilled into his blood serum when he was going along the conveyor belt or whatnot. So somebody was, you know, having a little, a little GT on the job and... Uh, <laughs> And spilled it into the embryo. But he he still gets to be alpha plus, even though he's slightly shorter. Yes. Oh, okay. So um, um, so this world isn't so clinical that every imperfection is completely dealt, done away with. But he sort of has lived with a little bit of a social stigma. Everyone is like, oh, Bernard. You know, he's sort of a little bit of the outsider. And he's felt it. 
He's got a little bit of a Napoleon complex. They like rest their elbows on his head all the time. Yeah, but he's short. now I, I need to highlight that 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 the height difference is not in feet. It's pretty minimal. It's like in inches. If it, it may even just be like one or two inches. It's not big, but it's enough that be, with everybody being at uniform height, he sort of feels inferior. And so that's given him a bit of a chip on his shoulder, and he's kind of grown up and, um, you know, sort of developed into someone that has a little bit of an outsider mentality. He, and, the, and one of the things he absolutely hates, or does not like taking, is he doesn't like to take Soma. Um, he doesn't like to take it and feel kind of inauthentic and fake. There's many times that he sort of makes references to the fact that um, that by taking Soma, he's, yeah, he, he, he's lacking authenticity. Now this kind of makes sense with him being, you know, um, um, short and, and, you know, grumpy about it, that, uh, he sort of, he, he craves some sort of real authenticity and, and real connection with, with people because he's always sort of feeling like everybody's like, Oh, <laughs> hey, shorty. Every time that they hang out. So, so he's got this little bit of a chip on his shoulder and he doesn't just want to like deal with it by taking Soma. So that's Bernard. He is not a very, I mean, he's very sympathetic at the beginning of the book, but he turns into a bit of a twit as the book goes on. And the seeds of his twit, twitness, his Twitterdom. Oh, oh wait, Twitter. That's a yes. different, his Twittery. Twittery, yes. <laughs> um, is evident in, in sort of these early chapters. Okay, so there's Bernard. Then there is Lenina. Uh, Lenina named after Lenin. All these characters are named after basically like centralized planners and communists and socialists. We have we have Marx, we have Lenin, we've got um, um, there's a there's a Mussolini in there somewhere, I think. So is um, they, is, sounds like a pasta. No. Is Huxley doing this as a criticism of those people? I think he's just saying that like or this is this just a is just as they look back in history and they think about like <laughs> the, who are the names that we want to emulate? It's these people that thought about strong central organization, mm -hmm. like how we look back and say, I'm going to name my kid Joshua, or I'm going to mm -hmm. name my kid Ezekiel or whatever. I just wonder about it because, so Ford is their God, is mm -hmm. that the right? Whatever. Mm -hmm. So it, so Ford, a capital, there's Henry's. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just saying like, so if capitalists are very highly praised, but then also these centralized planners are highly praised. But it's not just that he's a capitalist. It's that he's, is the inventor of the um, assembly um, line. The assembly line. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of more of it. Okay. So there's Lenina and she is a beta, but she is one of those betas who has not been sterilized and who uh, can bear children. Um, as Huxley points out, that the women who are sterilized um, tend to somewhat develop a little more on the masculine side um, as they develop, and those who, uh, not not greatly, like it's not a grotesque thing, but he is saying that those that have not been sterilized generally have more of this like um, sexual attractiveness to them. Um, and Lenina is one of these, and as a beta, she is very highly sought after all of the alpha and beta, her alpha and beta, um, um, you know, citizens. And so she has been dating, it's, it's not even dating, it's just essentially going on dates and sleeping around, um, with many, many men over the course of her life. And she, at the beginning of the book, um, confesses to her friend, the delightfully named Fanny, <laughs> Good. Um, and I think definitely that Huxley is is thinking like Fanny, like your bum, um, because thank you. Uh, uh, again, sort of this 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 sexualization, this sort of playfulness Fanny with like a th. No, 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 with with an f, not what? Fanny, like 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 Thanos. Th yeah, Fanny. <laughs> that's what I heard. Oh, Fanny okay. with Sorry, an f. Fanny. Fanny. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, so again, you even see this. 
um, sort of um, the sexualization or, or the sort of the um, infantilism of, of the whole thing even baked into some of these characters' names and, and dispositions and whatnot. Anyway, um, so Lenina is like, man, she's just not feeling the dating very many people thing, and she has been seeing this guy named Henry for a month exclusively. How dare she? I know, and Fanny is like, like girl, you that's not good. Um, that is unhealthy. Um, this is, and then she's like, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. I, um, so we, I guess we referenced Brave New World and 1984 being tied or related. So there's no fear of someone coming in and, and imposing something on her. Is there? No. Is there, is there any At threat least, to her if she stays in this relationship? There isn't, uh, there isn't at the same kind of threat of a 1984, but there's more just generally like a concerned friend saying, um, oh, like this is, this is not good for your, for your health. Um, right. For her to just sleep or to, to, yeah. Yeah. To be committed to one person for longer than like a night. Right. Yes. Like that's not okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so it's, it's less like, you know, the, the, the big black boots are going to come and, and drag you off if you don't conform to social norms, but it's more, oh, this is not healthy for you. And I'm concerned for you as a friend. It's so baked into their development that, you know, yeah. I mean, um, mm-hmm. hanging out with one person for too long gets in, into all sorts of emotional trouble yes. and you're not sharing yourself mm-hmm. with everyone else and mm-hmm. having the kids you need to have. Yeah. And Although there is a system in place of, of those who can't really fit into the system. There is a place where to ship them off to, and we'll get to that at the end of the book. Um, so Lenina has been seeing Henry and she says essentially that she just can't really quite put her finger on why, but just sort of feels like she wants something a little more special than just running off to bed with the, with the, the first person that she, or the next person in line. And she doesn't really know why. And then, uh, but she just wants to spend more time with Henry. She's sort of developing. And as we, as outside readers are, are like, yeah, she's developing feelings, obviously, um, for him. She's, she's starting to fall for him. And Fanny's like, you know, girl, you got to get over this girl. You got to, you know, um, find some other, some other dude. So she's kind of, you know, feeling a little weird, uh, feeling like everything's just not working for her. And then we have the character of Hemholtz. And Hemholtz is an alpha plus. He is the top of the top. He is handsome. He's um, tall. He's smart. He's accomplished. He has a great career. He has this mixture of what would be considered like an academic position, but the, the academic position is not something to do with, with learning. It's something to do with advertising. So, I mean, oh. he's, he's a persuader. Sure. Like applied, applied psychology. Applied psychology, yeah, sure. persuasion. He writes jingles. He comes up with, with sentences that get stuck in your brain. And, and he's one of the people that writes the things that when you go to sleep at night, um, uh, that plays in your pillow and you remember it and then, and then it, it sort of helps determine or condition your actions. Um, but it's not that he's working in Madison Avenue. It's, it's just, they talk about it that he's more uh, in, in what we would consider more of a, like the Oxford setting, but it has nothing to do with knowledge. It has everything to do with, with sort of the advertising. So, and um, Bernard and Hemholtz are buddies and Bernard comes to Hemholtz and uh, they start talking and Hemholtz says, you know, I'm the best at what I do, but I'm, uh, Hemholtz says, man, I'm just kind of sick of like all these girls wanting, throwing themselves at me. And Bernard's like, <laughs> and Bernard, who's a little bit shorter and has not, not really experienced girls throwing themselves at him is like, oh, my child, I'm like, so sad for you. I got one thing to say and 
That's what I can sympathize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and so Bernard's like, uh huh, and um, and Hemholtz is like, and I love writing. I love coming up with these sayings. He says that um, where when I put these sentences together, I just love seeing it hit somebody and go inside somebody like an X-ray or like they've just sat on a pin. That these words have this effect on people. And he says, but you know, what's good, but I'm just writing about, like, crap. Like, I'm just writing about, adver- you know, uh, advertising things, and and nothing's really um, meaningful. He says, I wish I could write something, um, well, here, let me, let, me, let me just read to the book what he says. Um, Hemholt says, do you ever feel, he asked, as though you had something inside you that was only waiting for you to give it a chance to come out. Some sort of extra power that you aren't using. You know, like all the water that goes down the falls instead of through the turbines. He looked at Bernard questioningly. You mean all the emotions one might be feeling if things were different? Which is a very Bernard answer. (laughs) Hemholtz shook his head, not quite. I'm thinking of a queer feeling I sometimes get. A feeling that I've got something important to say. And the power to say it. Only I don't know what it is, and I can't make any use of the power. If there was some different way of writing, or else something else to write about, he was silent. Then, you see, he went on at last, I'm pretty good at inventing phrases. You know, the sort of words that suddenly make you jump, almost as though you'd sat on a pin. They seem so new and exciting, even though they're about something hypnopatically obvious. But that doesn't seem enough. It's not enough for the phrases to be good. What you make with them ought to be good, too. And then he goes on to say, um, but what on earth's the good of being pierced by an article about these sort of inane, silly things? Um, Besides, can you make words really piercing, like the very hardest x-rays, when you're writing about that sort of thing? Can you say something about nothing? That's what it finally boils down to. So Hemholtz has the capacity or the gift of being able to turn a phrase or to be able to, to, he knows that he can say something that affects people. He has rhetorical skill, but he has no content. He has no grammar. He has nothing important to talk about. He has all the skills to say something important and nothing important to talk about. All he has is just like, you know, buy this car or whatever. He will eventually... Say something, though. Isn't that- he will eventually say something. So this is at the beginning. So these nope. are the characters, and this is their problems. Is there... Uh, so we talked last time about how the lower tiers, lower castes, whatever the appropriate mm-hmm. term is, they are hindered in some way. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, alcohol or whatever. So are the alpha pluses just like a regularly developed human? Yes. And I think that... So they're regularly developed, and the pluses, I don't think, come in any sort of cognitive ability, but come in, like, physical appearance mm-hmm. and... Um, um, it, they don't really address how different the alpha pluses are from the alphas, um, but there does seem to be a little bit of a height and a little bit of a like, if, even if you want to think of British society, like an mm. aristocracy kind of thing. Yep. Are they also sort of selected f- f- as the genetically superior specimens? I think so. I, aren't they all yeah. like attractive yeah, and they fast are. and muscular yeah. Yeah, and yeah, tall? Yeah. And- mm-hmm. So like us. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Exactly, yeah, right. This is why we will never, ever videotape an episode. 
Because then we could be proven yeah. wrong. Because yeah. the audience would be like, nah. Yeah. Like we're, you know, yeah, we're just eating like bags of grease and sitting in waiting pools. And I don't know. <laughs> oh my God. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think of something that's not Guys, very next time. That sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. So, um, so these are the three characters. And then, so when you, when I teach this, I say, okay, we, we sort of diagnose the, the, these characters. And when, as we sort of peel across the layers, we say, sort of what's really bothering them. And eventually the students get to some sort of answer by saying they want human things that this society doesn't provide anymore. So what are the, like the human, what are these sort of natural human things that they want that the society has kind of bred out of the system? Babies. Okay, so, well. That's what Lenina wants, right? An honest relationship. Yeah, Lenina wants, Lenina wants meaningful relationships, somebody to love, somebody to share her experiences and her life with. Yeah. And, um, and maybe that translates into family as well, but, but at least, um, um, although she wouldn't put it in these words, somebody who cares for her and nobody else. You know, somebody who yeah, loves and her and to not others. Care for, yes, I and think. someone to care for. Yeah, um, someone to cherish and to be cherished by, which I think is a very you know that is a that is a very human need. Yep. Um, um, loneliness is one of the you know a terrible a terrible thing. If you're feeling like there is no one you care for and no one who cares for you, uh, Lenina, uh, yes, wants to be um, cherished and wants someone to cherish. Okay, what about Bernard? He's a little harder. Is it? Is it capacity for advancement? Has he been has he been naturally yeah. stunted? So he can never he can never prove himself. He can never advance. He can never he, because he is an alpha and maybe a lesser one. He can never make alpha plus. He can I never be so. a regular. There alpha. Maybe as part of that. There's also he wants to be seen as as sort of important in the eyes of others, and that becomes very bastardized and terrible later on in the book because when he comes back and has this sort of trophy, everyone's like, ooh, Bernard, you're so smart. And he That's and he, he gets, gets all of this praise from not even so having done it. He gets what he wants, and it's, and it's bad yeah. for him. He becomes right. a terrible, he becomes a jerkbag. Um, but there's, okay, so he becomes a jerkbag. He wants recognition and praise in the eyes of others because he's been teased his whole life. But there's got to be a good desire behind that kind of ugly human um, you could call outflow. it self-realization or potential. Yeah, or or desire to be part of the community, wanting to sure. be wanting to be. Um, um, it's like honor. He wants yeah. respect from. Yeah. He wants the respect. Community. I yeah. think. Yeah, I think respect is. That's is, a good way to put it. it. And and uh, he and then he falls in the same pitfall that many people fall into is that he wants respect without being respectable, mm, without good. having to be respectable. Yeah. Okay. And then Hemholtz is probably one of the easier ones to point out, but what does Hemholtz sort of Meaning. want? Meaningful work. Meaningful work, creativity. Uh, the, the, the man's a poet. The man is an artist. The man wants to, he wants to do what human beings do, which is to express oneself beautifully. He wants purpose. Some wants sort purpose. of actual purpose beyond just, Ads. And it doesn't, and he doesn't feel rewarded when he's the highest paid ad man or the highest paid word worker in the industry. It's like being the fastest swimmer across the kiddie pool. <laughs> yeah, m- maybe fastest to the bag of grease at the yeah. other end. <laughs> yeah. Good, good. It's all connected. Oh Good. my goodness, this is, that's a gross, Full oh, circle. gross, gross summer. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah, so he he wants. I mean, the kind of thing that like what? Why do our students? You know, learning, spend all these hours trying to play, learn how to play guitar, or what drives some, what drives all those communities of people to like curate Wikipedia? Like they're not getting paid, there, but there's this idea of like of purpose, meaningful work, maybe even legacy, um, um, adding value to the world. And he thinks that what he's he's wasting his light on valueless things. Okay, so there are these three characters, but 
they're not they're not like upheaving their life for this. This is just a little gnawing dissatisfaction that they have in the back of their minds. Okay. Do you have any sense that other people feel this or do we only know that we only three... really get these characters insight? There's plenty of other characters yeah. who are like sort of glassy eyed, like everything is awesome. And then, you know, uh, and, and, um, just talk about like how great everything is today. They're bought in. Mm-hmm. They're, yeah, they're, they're bought in. Kool-Aid's, Kool-Aid's ingested. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're ready to go. Okay. So a couple of things. So then Bernard, so Lenina takes Fanny's advice and decides that she is going to go on a date with somebody else and to kind of like stick it to these other boys that are all these like handsome boys that are vying for her attention. She decides to go on a date with Bernard, little awkward, weird Bernard. And Bernard is excited because Lenina is uh, attractive and is, you know, all the boys want her. Desired by it, yeah. And Bernard gets a little bit of reflected respect from his, well, he thinks it's respect. Uh, he gets a little bit of that a feeling of, I, people want what I've got now. <laughs> but it's Lenina, and that's a terrible thing. Um, um, nobody, whenever you see, like, I don't know, when, you, when someone drives a fancy car, everyone driving the fancy car says, everybody wishes they were me. But everybody seeing the car is like, man, I want that car. And doesn't even think about the person driving right. the car. Anyway, um, not to compare Lenina to a car. Well, I am. Because that's what how this world is set up, which is a terrible thing, is that women are these objects to be won and to be and to be conquered, and that is, and I always joke, I'm like, is that any does that ring true today, mm. kids? And they're like, oh, are you, are you kidding me? Of course it does. And and by seeing it in this extreme way, they are sort of maybe even for the first time awakened to kind of how dehumanizing and terrible that is. Okay. Um, so Bernard and Lenina, they're going to go on this date and, um, so they go on their date and, uh, it's really hilarious. They get in their helicopter and they go to Amsterdam and they watch uh, a lady wrestling competition. I don't know why Huxley thought that that was what we would do in the future, but there we go. <laughs> uh, maybe because, uh, it's, it's kind of like. Oh, inappropriate. I don't know. We have lady wrestling now. Was that what I was going to say? Was <laughs> WWE big in the Huxley's time? Yeah, like, I guess. <laughs> I think it was something that he thought would be scandalous, uh, a scandalous thing hmm. to watch. And we're like, we have that. Um, anyway. <laughs> we get pretty big numbers. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then Bernard is taking Lenina home and he stops the helicopter over the English Channel and he hovers it there and he turns off the radio and there's a storm sort of coming on the horizon and he just sort of hovers there in the silence and he's like, let's just sit here and hover in silence and just... Bernard is doing what you should never do on a date, which is try to like manufacture a moment mm. when the um, <laughs> and um, and he's trying to like really connect with Lenina, and Lenina is freaked out. Um, it's weird. Bernard's like, let's just listen to the silence. I don't want to talk. I I just want to like I just want to exist in this moment without everybody around us. Nobody's watching us. It's just us. Lenina who has been bred like everybody else to distrust and hate silence is very uncomfortable without any, without any distraction. And she immediately turns on the radio. She just needs to have something distracting her. And she doesn't want to have this moment with Bernard and she doesn't want to have some sort of conversation. And she's sort of saying like, aren't we going to hurry home and like go sleep together? Because that's what happens at the end of dates. And he kind of gets upset. He's like, really? Like, we're just going to, we're just going to do that. Like everybody else, we're just going to, and he, he has this speech where he says, we're just going to like, uh, jump into bed together like kids, which That's weird. which is a weird saying. But what he's but getting the, at is yeah. is we're just going to um, indulge ourselves. We're like we like um, like we've sort of been trained to do. We're and in their world, children are encouraged to engage in that sort yes, of yes, exactly. Play. Children it's, that's mm-hmm. messed up. But when he says yes. like kids in their world, that's actually a thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. But he's also feeling like 
there's an uh, he's got this intuition that there's an immaturity to it or that there he sort of has these glimpses that glimpses that delayed gratification is maybe a good thing um and or that there's maybe something more to a relationship yes. than just jumping in the yeah. sack together and then Lenny is like I don't really know oh, are you is this happening or not and he's like fine and he and he takes Soma and off they go and it's um, okay, and then they're going to go on another... Um, so does Lenina actually want that family connection that you just talked about? Like, didn't she just reject it? She is. Uh, there's sort of hints that she's doing this also to see if Henry gets jealous kind oh, of thing. okay. And, so she's not actually um, interested in... Yeah, she's not really interested in Bernard. Bernard yeah. And she's kind of like her friend got her head all twisted around saying that she was unhealthy and, ha- and hanging out with Henry so often. Um, should we talk about... I don't... I feel like we probably should talk about Orgy Porgy. Um, because it's plays such a big role at the end of the book. We kind of have to. We kind of have to. Okay, so um, should we give a? Yeah, we should probably give warning? a little bit of a disclaimer. I mean, if, <laughs> if you're listening you to Brave New World, if, you, yeah, if you've been like, my child is fine so far, then I mean, keep going, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but I you mean, might wanna if you've got yes. kids or sensitive ears in the car. This next little bit is, is a little sensitive. is a little uh, pretty sensitive. So um, some people have talked about this book as that there's no need for religion. And I don't think that's necessarily true. There's a character at the end of the book that says there's no need for heaven or God or sin or or the idea of like needing to reward ourselves by virtuous living for the reward of heaven. But there is still, as far as Huxley seems to be concerned, a need for communal liturgical practices as, as sort of religious expression. And he has this uh, in the world as basically the world's worst Bible study. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, it's called the, um, it's called the uh, uh, Solidarity Service. And six men and six women are put together. Um, we don't really know how, but they go to essentially a church building or they go to some sort of community church center. And they are they go through a liturgical service. They go through through a service. And Huxley is obviously thinking of uh, you know the Church of England and Catholicism as he sort of structures a service. It has elements of that. I'll describe the service, and then I'll talk a little bit about why I think Huxley has this in in the story and in, in their lives, like their condition at li- at birth. Why do you need to have a religious service? Uh, what, what sort of ser- service does it, per- does it um, serve? Purpose does it serve? So six men and six women, the 12 apostles, um, come together and they chant and they sing songs basically about um, um, how together we meld into one another and our individuality is, is, is put together into a unified one. Uh, and they use like industrial metaphors about metals being melded together to make steel and... Um, and water, certain drops of water slipping into one ocean, and us sort of, we drink to our annihilation. It's this idea of the individuality is stripped away, and we are all, we're all one, you guys. We're all, we're all, like, the universe is love. Um, <laughs> we're all... That sounds familiar, yeah. too. Isn't, that, <laughs> isn't this kind of a way of preventing maybe conflicting worldviews? If someone has a different view out there, this sort of draws them all back together. It gives them something to believe in. Yeah, and it also blunts the edge of individualism. Right. So what they do is then they um, the, what the, what they don't really realize is that um, so liquefied soma or you know um, aerosol soma is being pumped into the room so they're getting sort of high on the soma. They pass around um, uh, the Eucharist, but instead of it being bread and wine, it is a strawberry milkshake and mm. cake yeah. or something yeah. or soma wafers. 
and, you know, very indulgent in their what they eat. And they eat this, they drink this, um, eat this cake and drink this strawberry soda laced with soma. And then everybody is sort of all hopped up and all feeling great. And then someone yells out, uh, it's sort of this fever pitch of emotion. The music is getting more intense. People, the chanting gets more intense. It's almost sort of tribalistic. And then there's this great emotional release and this great sort of physical release, and, and it's it's it gets to this euphoric pitch, and they yell orgy porgy, and then it is insinuated that they all sleep together, that there is a sort of a, a, a the six men and the six women have well you you, you know what the word means, um, and then and then it's done, and then the the passions have been quelled, and the and the high emotions have been exercised, and everyone's sort of like okay, whoo man, that that's like. Feel like we just had some real good community. We were just doing life together, you know. Like, and everybody goes doing life together. Yes. And every my word. I know. I, I'm trying to be. I, I'm. I'm kind of. Pa- I'm intentionally yeah. using the sort of language that right. we use in church to yeah, sort yeah. of show why I think Huxley is doing this. And so they have this this grotesque and terrible r- ritual, and then off they go back to their regular lives, and it sort of you know marks their week. Okay, so it's like it, 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 is, it is functioning as a church service for them. And Huxley is I, definitely a member of the school that looked at the anthropology of religion and, and went sort of as a himself, not a, not a, um, uh, if he believed in God, I don't think he, I don't even think he did, but, but saw religious expression as sort of this weird anthropological thing and studied it. And he probably takes a similar kind of view as many psychologists of his day that religious expression is um, just sort of this natural human expression that helps give people order and meaning to their lives, regardless of whether or not it's true. So you can swap out. You don't need the God part of it. You, just you don't need, need Jesus. You don't need God. You just sort of need to have a regular some, meeting. You just need to have a regular meeting of people who are um, holding up values that are good for the community, the values being solidarity and not unselfishness and, and working together. And if, if someone, if they believe it, fine, if they don't believe it, but it actually sort of like gets them through the week, that's great. Um, I'm reminded of, of, uh, sort of when Jordan Peterson is asked, do you actually do believe in God? He says, I act as if I do. Because you get all these, he, he sort of says, because you get sort of these psychic benefits. You get this, right. this sort of these benefits that come to to help give meaning and order to an an organization to your life. And whether or not he exists or not, it's kind of secondary. Doesn't it's it? kind of secondary. Uh, what's primary is is the sort of framework to live. And I think Huxley is is that's why he's giving them orgy porgy. Is here's another. I think Shapiro thing. is in kind of the same boat. Oh gosh, Shapiro is not in the same boat. He's no, 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 Jewish. He's, he's a he is a full devout Jewish. But if you ever ask like, what is God? His view on God is is less than 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 the old scriptures. Would oh, sort of interesting. Imply. I, ha- I have As far as I know, really... his his oh. his views on who God mm-hmm. actually is is mm-hmm. closer to the edges of gotcha. than. Well, but he is a devout um, Jew. Yeah, Jew. I know yeah, that um, that sort of this cycle this psychoanalysis of of religion and religious expression is having a moment now, precisely because of Peterson. And so I bought t- the the twelve, 12 rules. rules for life. I bought yeah. it this summer. I'm going to read it. I'm going to see what all, all the hype is about. Um, anyway, cool. We should probably we should talk about Jordan Peterson at some other point because I think he has what we would call a Christian worldview, but it does not require belief in Christ. Yeah, him and um, there's another. Um, is he a Serbian? 
Um, uh, what, do you know uh, what I'm talking Gulag, about? Uh, Archipelago. You're talking about um, no. Solzhenitsyn? No, we're not talking about Solzhenitsyn. I'm talking about the uh, modern... Um, oh, never mind. Uh, he's either Serbian or Polish. I Oh, man, I can't remember his name. But he is also someone that says, uh, I love reading Chesterton and Tolkien and Lewis, and you can only understand paganism if, you, if you're a Christian. Um, but he's not. I can't remember his name. It's, We're going to talk about St. Augustine S- in a few episodes. Like and huh? I think St. Augustine ties together these two things in a really interesting way also. So all of these, epi- all these episodes are connected. Sounds like there's another. We'll talk about that in another episode. Yeah, Sounds good. good. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, so this is, so you see, you have Orgy Porgy, and it's, again, another tool of control. And, and it sort of helps blunt the edges of any kind of feeling of individualism or outsiderness. And that's, that's a threat to the system. Bernard hates Orgy Porgy. Um, okay. Story moves on. And it, that we hear about that from his perspective, right? Yes. Where he's like, he doesn't want to be a part of it, but he, yeah, he has he, to, he does it because or he feels like he sort of has like doesn't someone encourage him. He, yeah. yeah or he's like, got like a social responsibility to do yeah. it. Or if you don't come, there's only 11 and people are going to be like, mm. Hey man, where were I you? didn't see a church on Sunday. Is everything okay? And you know, <laughs> it's funny. that kind of thing. That's funny. Social reinforcement. Yeah. Okay. So Bernard and Lenina are continuing their dating experience, and they decide to take a road trip together or a helicopter trip. And they go off to um, – they're going to go off and they're going to um, – Primitive. They're going to go and experience essentially a zoo. But it's not a zoo of animals. It's a zoo of people. So they fly off to New Mexico, and in – That still makes me giggle. Yeah, that New, New Mexico. Mexico. That yeah. He just picked a state. Yeah. Do we know where they're located? Where Lenina marks like the – civilization is located uh it's i mean it's in this it's in this made up place called new mexico no no you said new new mexico is where they're going for the primitive yeah yeah no no where are they coming from oh they're coming from london london that's yeah, where they're coming okay. yeah. so he picks the united states as where that's what i mean well, how, how do you guys as, know, as, as a londoner he picks the yeah. united yeah. states well, how do you know that this as new, new wait is? how do you know this new mexico is in is in the united states because we have a new mexico what is happening right now there's a new mexico yeah, yeah. You really? No, I'm speaking. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> what is happening right now? I don't, are you? Yeah. No, I've been there. We, right. we have a New Mexico. I just okay. think it's funny he would pick the, the people zoo is the in States. the United yeah. States. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and yeah, they, and so then um, they go and it's a tribe of people that exist, you know, without outside of this brave new world, outside of this conditioning. It's people that live like a tribe and it's a very primitive tribe. Um, and it's, it's the ways it's, it's sort of described the way that you would consider uh, primitive tribes to be, to be structured. Um, it's impoverished, or it seems impoverished to outsiders. Uh, it's got a hierarchical structure. Um, there are families. Women are revered for their uh, f- uh, for what they bring in terms of their femininity to the group. The men are revered for what they bring in terms of their masculinity to the group. Um, it, you know, it's a tribe. Uh, Lenina and Bernard are horrified because they've right. never seen old people before. Right. Um, because everybody uh, doesn't age in this brave new world. Old people or a lot of the disease that's there. A lot there, of the disease and just sort of like harrowing. rotting teeth and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and they're they're grossed out because there are babies like attached to moms. And it's just They've like, never oh seen my. rotting teeth? Aren't they from so. London? Yes, I know. But this is, this is uh, the <laughs> well, brave new world. I'm just, I'm just getting them back for picking the U.S. as the uh, human zoo. <laughs> the human so zoo. eat um, that, Brits. So they go to this and they witness a religious service in this tribe. And what happens is it's, there's some sort of, um, um, there is the threat to the tribe uh, as uh, sort of symbolized by these snakes. There is a sacrifice for the tribe as symbolized by one of the young men of the tribe. The young man whips himself 
and um, draws blood and then members of the tribe whip him and draw his blood and then his blood is dipped in white feathers and then the white feathers are painted on the snakes and then the snakes are burned and then the man is carried off as a hero and it's unclear as to whether or not the, he lives or dies. I, I've read it a bunch of times. I still can't remember if he's actually killed for the tribe or if it's just a pastiche. Um, but anyway, the symbolism is kind of clear. Like, you know, one person coming and, and their blood is sacrificing themselves for our wholeness of the tribe. Similar themes going on in both of these religious services, but with different, with different things. In one, someone is sacrificing willingly their individuality for the tribe. In the other one, someone is, is being almost stripped of their individuality for the social cohesion of the group. All right. Hmm. And then as they're there, this handsome young man who does not look like he is of the same um, uh, sort of ethnic makeup of the tribe members comes forward crying and everybody in the tribe is sort of like, get out of here, you weirdo. And um, he comes and he sees Bernard and Lenina and lo and behold, he can speak English. And Bernard and Lenina and his name is John. And Bernard and Lenina are like, who the heck are you? And Lenina's like, hot dang, John is attractive. Um, and, um, John tells his very sad story. So John's sad story is that he is from this brave new world that you and, that you and Lenina come from. My mother is from there. And lo and behold, there's a story where this mother, her name was Linda and her lover did the very same thing that Bernard and Lenina did. They went off on vacation. Linda was also someone who could bear children. And while on vacation, she lost her little belt with the pill on it and got pregnant uh, didn't know she was pregnant, and then she got lost on one of these trips and was lost in the desert, and her her date was like, oh, I guess she's dead, and went home to London, right. and she, pregnant, was lost in the desert and was taken in by this tribe. She gives birth to John, and the tribe is like, uh, he's not one of us, and Linda proceeds to live the way Linda does. So Linda tries to sleep with everybody in the tribe, Linda really wants Soma. There is no Soma, but the next best alternative is this alcoholic beverage that she indulges in. She hates being part of this tribe because she's now a mother, which is, you know, terrible thing. Uh, a shocking thing, a disgusting thing. She has done the worst thing that can be done is because is to give birth to a human. And if I remember right, doesn't doesn't she sort of long for the distractions of the city? Like she wants magazines. Yeah, and that yeah. Sort of she thing? misses yeah. magazines. She misses civilization. You guys, she misses oh, sports okay. and She's magazines. Like, if I could just Soma. have us magazine, yeah, she'll like, be happy. I'd be happy. Yeah. Yeah. But no, she has this kid who like is weirdly affectionate to her, and she has these, this inner, inner, inner turmoil where she love, feels, loves him but is disgusted by him because he is everything. He has turned her into this thing that, you know, is disgusting, the mother. Um, and then she tries to sleep with everybody and everybody in the tribe, you know, is like, whoa. So, you know, all the boys make fun of John, like, your mom is not cool. Right. <laughs> or cool, depending. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but, of course, John is an outsider. Right. And John and wants all the to, women in the tribe. How do they feel about her? Oh, they don't, hate don't they her. Hate her? Yeah. And yeah. They throw rocks at John whenever he's around. He wants to be part of the group. So he tells this sad story of his growing up. He wants like, to You're marry. You're embarrassing me, mom. Yeah. Cause she keeps on trying to sleep with the exactly. guys. Exactly. Yeah. John wants to marry somebody in the tribe one day. Can't get married. She marries somebody else. And he feels this great loss. And his mom's like, Oh, marriage, like marriage is so like, Oh, savage. Yeah. And John is, feels this loss. Um, John wants to be initiated into manhood like all the other men and go into the cave and do whatever their sacred ritual is to, be, to, be, to emerge as men, but they won't let him. So he is, he is un, uh, unmanned. He is, he is not initiated into, into the tribe. 
and um, and there is no sort of work. There's no one who sort of is taking him under his wing and training him. John is not completely ignorant of the world. As a young boy, he found in a garbage heap um, uh, two books. One, a book that was like a, an instruction manual for like a toaster or something. And he like learned, he learned some basic mechanical things by reading this manual. The other book that he found was the complete works of Shakespeare. And he read the complete works of Shakespeare, and this ended up create, being for him his moral and human and worldview-shaping framework. So when his... So did he try to kill his uncle? Well, well <laughs> or, uh... when his mom was sleeping with this guy um, named Pope, um, um, John hated Pope because he felt like he was disrespecting and besmirching and, and, and his mother and that they were living in sin. And so when he read Hamlet about King Claudius sleeping with Gertrude and he was like, ooh, the, you know... Um, wasting away in their inseamed bed, gross. Um, John's like, oh, I know what that feels like. Mm. I know how that, I know what Hamlet's feeling right now. And all these feelings of wanting to be involved, um, he feels like Othello, an outsider. Uh, Othello's probably the most, like, noble, honorable Shakespeare hero. Um, and, um, and he is uh, immediately sus- suspected of crimes because of his, because he's African. Uh, and so John sort of feels the same thing because he is not of the tribe. Um, he sort of sympathizes with Othello. Um, he meets, and then so when John sees Lenina, he is sort of inflamed with a new love for her. He lost this first girl to a tribe, but he sees her and he's like, "Oh man, she is cute." And so then all of a One sudden, one might Ro- even say pneumatic. Yes. <laughs> and so then Romeo and Juliet <laughs> floods into his mind yeah. and that she burns like a torch. She te- teaches the torches to burn bright. It seems she hangs upon the cheek of night like a rich jewel in an Ethiop's ear. Like these things pop into his mind. And he won't take the lesson of Romeo and Juliet and be like, ooh, a bad yeah, idea. Yeah, bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. So John says, listen, I have no anchor here. I have no feeling here. Linda's like, can we take me home? Mm-hmm. I, I gotta get out of here. And John says, well, yes, I want to come and I want to meet my father and go and find my place, this place. My mom keeps telling me that I would be happy if I was home and I want to go home. And they're like, fine, cool. And Bernard's like, everyone's going to love this guy. So they take John home and John, and it immediately turns into like a, a, a Pocahontas story or like a, what's the other... In the 19th century in colonialism, they would, you know, bring these oddities home to England and and, and show the king and queen, like, look, hmm. this is a princess of India. And they'd be like, oh, wow, she's so weird. Um, um, and, you know, these terrible, these right. terrible stories. Yeah. And there's a similar thing going on where John is paraded around, um, you know, the upper crust. And they ask him questions like, do you, Savage, have a father? And he's like, yes. And they're like, oh, how gross. Oh, savages, aren't they fascinating, right? Um, and uh, and even Bernard... Though that, even though that father is like one of them. Yes, yeah. we'll get to that. Yeah. No, but, and then Bernard is welcomed into all these like high society parties because he's the guy right. that brought the savage that is like the, the you know, specimen of the hour. He's the gatekeeper. He's the gatekeeper, yeah. yes. He's the gatekeeper to I get the feeling if the they savage. wanted, if they could have just John, they would have just John. Mm-hmm. And Bernard know, knows it, which makes him even meaner. Mm. Um, but anyway, and then John gets to meet his father, and his father is one of the directors of the hatcheries. And when John sees him, he, his father is giving a tour, and, Lin, and Linda comes waddling in. She's like, do you remember, remember me? But she's all like nasty she's looking. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, uh, and, and John comes in, and he's like, father, 
uh, how I've missed you. And then the dad runs out right. horrified and not like, interested. Yeah. Everyone sort of insinuates he's going to lose his job or he's just going to be seen as like, whoa, that guy's got a weird past. Uh, is he right to be giving tours to children mm. if he is this kind of miscreant? So, um, and then John is devastated. Um, Linda, sorry, Lenina feels her affections growing for John. And also John refuses to sleep with her. They go on a couple of dates. And at the end, he's like, good night. And goes upstairs. And Linda's like, uh. What are you doing? Because it, it cheapens it, right? For him, yeah. he, he idolizes her. And if she just hops right into bed with him. That's right. It'll, it'll cheat. Because that's and what his mom was doing. And he doesn't see he that is, as. He sees that as like he's base not virtuous, and gross. It's really base. And, and so she would be reduced in his eyes. And he would want to do that. And the honorable, the honorable uh, virginal woman. I mean, he's thinking of, of oh, what's her name in. Um, uh, which is the one where like they love each other, but they always hate it, but they always are mean to each other. Is it Taming of the Shrew? No, not Taming. Is it Much Ado About Nothing? You mean fifth grade? <laughs> <laughs> there you. it is. Good. I think he's thinking of like, you know, the honorable women, the virtuous virginal women who, you know, uh, uh, don't hold themselves cheaply. And he thinks Lenina is like that. And Lenina, and then, okay. So John is being t- toured around. And, and as he sees the way that this civilized society works, he is he is yeah. horrified. Yeah. He hates it. He goes when he is taken on a tour of the Department of Hatcheries, and this is how children are born. He he is sick, violently behind a dumpster. He just he it is horrifying to him. It all comes to a head when Lenina can no longer control herself, and um, he and she basically on a date uh, strips off all of her clothes, and she's like, "John, this is happening," and uh, John in not having been realizing that the world is not what he thought it was and is in a, is in a, a bad place emotionally, uh, freaks out at Lenina and um, calls her very, very mean names regarding her chastity mm. and um, is almost violent with her. And Lenina is terrified and locks herself in a bathroom. And John's idea of that this woman was supposed to be this virtuous um, um, uh, beauty, this virginal virtuous um, beauty is in fact in his eyes, a harlot. Um, um, and, and very he, much like his mother. Mm. And very much like his mother, he is enraged and he is horrified. And the situation is only um, diffused when he gets a call from the hospital saying that Linda is dying. And so he goes off to the hospital and he's by his mother, which is like, he comes and he's like, where is she? She's dying. And everyone's like, why do you care? And he's <laughs> right. like, it's my mom. And I was like, whoa, gross. Yeah. Um, and he goes and he's by her and Linda's always been uncomfortable with displays of affection of son to mother because it reminds her of, of this sort of the gross relationship of what she thinks is a terrible relationship, but she's also happy that he's there. Meanwhile, she is on so much Soma that she doesn't even think straight. Right. And so John is there next to his dying mother and she is on Soma and she, and, 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 uh, he says, mom, do you know that it's me? Do you realize? And she's like, John. And he's like, yes. And she's like, go away. Mm-hmm. And then she starts calling out Pope's name in sort of orgasmic ecstasy. And the, um, the, uh, the Soma drug is, is giving her this sort of um, uh, ecstatic, um, almost like um, sexual experience uh, subconsciously in her mind. And she, feel, she thinks that she is with Pope. And as she's dying, her last words are, everybody belongs to everybody and then dies. And this is John next to her being basically told by his mom to go away because she's with her, you know, with her lover in her mind. And he 
freaks out or he he is so sad and then it turns out that there's another tour group of a bunch of little kids going through the hospital and the kid's like oh she's ugly is she dead and then um john loses his mind and smacks the kid and he starts crying and then there's this whole big hullabaloo um where um basically uh um john kind of goes nuts and he starts thrashing and destroying everything and then he sees uh, someone coming with soma tablets to give to the workers because it's their payment and he like throws the soma tablets out the window and he's like workers unite throw off your chains right. you don't need to live in this system of hierarchy and and uh um and abuse and they're like give me my soma dude that's my soma you throw right. out the window um and it gets into such a big he gets into such a big tizzy that the police have to come and he's subdued with soma with a soma gas and um, the savage has lost his mind. And everyone's just like, man, we should not have brought like mm. a dangerous animal into our civilization. All right. Hem- Meanwhile, John and Hemholtz have been talking. Remember Hemholtz, the poet? And John showed him Shakespeare, and Hemholtz is like, man, this is good stuff, except <laughs> about all that mother-father and like people falling in love and wanting to be together crap. Yeah. No, Other this isn't that. what I'm looking for. I'm right. looking for something real, not not this sad trash. Good. And John's like, well, crap, this is the best thing I've ever, you know, this is Shakespeare. And Hemmoltz is like, no. Nah. Well, if that's the only thing, it's Shakespeare toaster. And so, <laughs> yeah, good. I, don't, I don't know that he Between has a lot to compare it to. But, but, but the tragedy true. is that the conditioning in Hemmoltz is so strong that when Shakespeare is given to him, he can't shake his conditioning and he sees it as sad because, and he sees it as kind of gross in body because it's talking about moms and dads. Right. He can't shake And lovers. He can't shake it. Yeah. Um, yep. Um, very piercing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thanks for joining in. I appreciate Thank that. Yeah. Um, helpful. Okay. So then, um, so that's, that sort of is a non-starter. So Hamilton's is like, no, I'm looking for something else. Not Shakespeare. I want real, I want real art. <laughs> so, okay. Oh, okay. Um, and then, so Bernard is responsible for this whole thing. Um, uh, John is like, I want out of here. Hemholtz is realizing that he thinks he wants, he just, he's not, he wants to maybe go off and, and. Anyway, so they're called in front to the world in front of this guy called the world controller. And he's kind of the top of the hierarchy. And I'm not going to go into the conversation because it is definitely the high point of the book. It is the world controller gives a speech and a in a defense of their world that is as I think rich and interesting um, as um, the Grand Inquisitor narrative in Do- in Dostoevsky's uh, Brothers Karamazov. And I, I say it's similar to that because, like the Grand Inquisitor, you can kind of read this this conversation in isolation from the rest of the story mm-hmm. and find it interesting. Basically, what the world controller says is, if God exists, we don't need him because we have everybody's happy now. Um, we don't need sin or virtue because everybody has all of the things that they would ever want. We have got rid of the things that made us miserable like families and and passions, like high passions, they made us miserable because they created conflict. We don't need conflict. We, we've given everybody sort of their bodily desires. And if anybody wants more than that, um, they're just not going to fit in here and, we're, and they should leave. So he, the world controller is like, even if God exists, it doesn't matter. We don't need him. We have Christianity without the tears is what he says. In other words, he says, we have the kingdom of heaven without Christ, salvation, or virtue, or sanctification. But, you know, it's a kingdom of heaven that all these characters don't want, are unhappy with. It's not driving with their human natures or whatnot. Anyway, so Hemholtz takes the package, and he says, I'm going to leave. And he goes off, and, and he's going to try to seek after this art himself 
on I think Fiji? it's like he goes no he goes to the oh. Falkirks he okay. goes to like some sort of I said the Falkirks or Iceland he goes to some sort of desolate place oh, okay. to try to um, to try to uh, uh, you know seek after this art himself yeah Bernard is sent to Iceland um, to one of these communities um, he's sort of committed too many uh, infractions and every, he's sort of been on a, on a short leash anyway because he's so short. Um, Good. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. So, um, disapproving look yes. at Graham. Sorry. Short leash. He's been uh-huh. on a short uh-huh. leash because of how tall he is. Okay. And um, <laughs> so they don't like him and they, they sort of see, see him suspiciously. So off he goes, kicking and screaming, and it's very sad and it's, and it's very pathetic. And then John's like, Can I go to these islands? I want out of this world. And they're like, No, buddy, you're so cool. Everyone thinks you're so fascinating. You got to stick around and, like, you know, uh, entertain us because you're so, such an oddity. And John's like, Well, nuts to you guys. I'm out. He goes off and he lives by himself in the woods. And he tries to live this hermetic lifestyle. He grows his own food. He builds his own little house. And he is by himself. Um, he writes Walden Pond. Yes. <laughs> and, but he is, again, searching for meaning, wants some, some something meaningful. The whole Anina episode has scarred him. And he wants, he needs some sort of spiritual output. Like everything is welling up inside of him and he has, he has no home. He has no place. He has no people. He has no purpose. And he doesn't know how to express this. He takes to whipping himself. He takes to trying to create some sort of elaborate system of rituals to, uh, to give his life some sort of meaning, but he can't do it by himself. Um, a filmmaker uh, finds him in the woods and sees him one day whipping himself and sees him in his sort of ritualistic life of this hermit wanting to be left alone, seeking, seeking, you know, it's very much like uh, the, her- the desert hermits of, of early Christianity, these yep. going off to the desert to try to find, to try to work out one's soul's um, um, perfecting by oneself. Um, it's very much what it evokes. And so this filmmaker's like, man, Oh, this guy's fascinating. Comes back with a camera, uh, uh, does like a nature documentary of this weird savage whipping himself and, and sort of living this aesthetic life in the woods. It becomes a sensation in the towns. Everybody watches this movie and thinks it's so weird. And then this huge crowd comes to John to try to sort of um, sort of look at him, gawk at him, uh, summer holiday, let's go watch the crazy wood man. And John is like, get out of here. Leave me alone. I hate all of you. You, you are all doing, mon- you live monstrous ways. The way you live is disgusting. Uh, and he's like whipping people and, and fro- you know, foaming at the mouth and he's furious with them. And Lenina shows up. And she runs to him, and the crowd is so loud that nobody, everyone sort of is getting into uh, an, emo- an emotional fever pitch. And uh, John is, is pacing back and forth, enraged, uh, swinging his whip around, telling everybody to get away. People are just enthralled and think this is amazing and interesting. Lenina comes forward on her knees, saying something to John that no one can hear. She's crying. Um, uh, 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 and John is full of rage. It is a high emotional state. And then somebody in the crowd yells out, orgy porgy, they start singing the songs of their liturgy, and then in this giant group of people, they have orgy porgy. The book ends with John waking up, looking at this crowd of people all satiated and docile and laying on the ground after whatever horrible acts they have committed with one another, and he gets up, and he walks into his house, and he hangs himself. And that is the end of the book. It's terrible. Yes. It is 
It is soul crushing the story. But the last the last few sentences are, are famous, masterfully written. Yes, they're they, masterfully written. We're not going to give it away. Ruin them. Let's not I don't ruin want to give it away, but mm-hmm. man, the end of the book is just some yes. tip top writing. But it is it is clearly a book that is at the end of it. Every time I teach it, every time I read it, even just me discussing on this podcast right now, I just feel so grieved for John, and I just feel so hopeless for the world that is created. Um, and, and Huxley, uh, sort of has, has, has his fingers on the pulse of the zeitgeist that we live in and that he saw sort of coming in the 1930s that when you, when you, when you read this book, um, and yeah, um, uh, that there's, there's just this sort of this, this absolute, um, feeling of tremendous sadness. At least that's how I feel every time I read it. And doesn't that mark a good dystopia? It's. Every dystopia should end in a warning like that. If oh, it's, for sure. If it ends happy or kind of like... It's that's not what, a dystopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's why I think that Hunger Games is sort of a failed dystopia. Mm-hmm. It ends sadly, but not like it needs to. Or if you went to the island and was like, hey, this island's all right. And he, and he lived and it's like, everybody kind of got what they wanted. Yeah, yeah. Then it wouldn't... It's not a good dystopia. Mm-hmm. You, it's a, a decent dystopia should be a warning against some future societal state that we should be afraid of. Yes, and the... and. For me, when I read this and think about this, the future societal state is is aspects of human nature that are catered to, but deficiency, but are very deficient in other things. You sort of have you, everyone has anemic souls. Everybody is is hungry for real purpose and doesn't have it. Yeah. Um, there is a crisis of purpose. Uh, people are talking about sort of nowadays, especially with with the youth. Uh, um, um, with the youth, how old do I sound? Um, <laughs> no, but there's uh, um, the uh, you know the youths. This comes up in in talking about uh, um, opium deaths and um, um, the sort of loss increased of purpose, suicide. the increased suicide the rate, and these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and this is there are many uh, wonderful podcasts and and just sort of people are talking about this now. Um, and are linking these things together. And this book is part of that conversation, or at least uh, I think is, is a helpful part to have in that conversation. I mean, a, a crisis of meaning is the only possible outcome if everything is relative. Exactly. And if everything it, is relative and nothing has meaning, then you're going to have a crisis of meaning. And if the polis is geared towards catering to um, to sort of cheap and easy satiation of desires, right. food, sex, yeah. Um, entertainment, that kind of thing. Um, so we didn't really get to the question which I want to talk about, which is um, and a question that someone uh, emailed us asking us to talk about is, does man have a right to be miserable or should the society work to eradicate what they think are, what generally makes people happy is what society should be for, what generally makes people miserable is what should be stamped out by at all costs or should people have a right to be miserable we don't have and time to have that conversation i, I replied that i thought the right to be miserable is what people are, are exercising when they listen to this podcast so <laughs> hey no, no. <laughs> um but anyway that is brave new world um that is that's sort of the primer to the story um uh i, I yeah go read it for yourself it is a book that i think um um other i think hmm I think non-Christians or people who are not in the classical Christian world or in or sort of um, are in this, this sort of classical conversation, when they read, they have maybe have a different reading of it or have a, have a different sort of interpretation of it. Or um, I, I feel like it's so um, um, on. I feel like it so cult- captures the current zeitgeist, and it is so. Um, uh, uh, um, 
um, on on the nose or sort of observational with it that you can't read the book and then go back and look at your world the way that we live in now and not be a little scared. It's kind of like watching an episode of Black Mirror, right? right? Yeah, (laughs) Um, for sure. uh, You you can't help but look and say, you you can't help but grow a little bit more in conservatism, I think, when you Mm. read it, saying we need to conserve things. I don't know what we need to conserve, Mm. but there's something that we need to conserve that that we may lose if we don't watch watch it. Um, maybe that's a provocative statement, but yeah. no, anyway. it's tr- that's mm-hmm. a good dystopia should have that yeah. result. Anyway, so that's Brave New World. Uh, we're coming up. We're at the hour mark. Uh, uh, we could keep talking about this, um, but um, we literally can't because if it goes too can't. far over yeah. no an knows. hour, I can't. I can't upload. And no one, love, no one likes us. Yeah. So I'll wrap it up. Sure. Then. So this has been classical stuff. You should know. You can find us online at classicalstuff.net. You can email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can find us on Twitter at classicalstuff. C L S S C A L stuff. I think that's all we have. So this has been Graham, AJ, and Thomas. And now we're signing off. Bye. Signing off. Bye. Bye.